Welcome to the Paramedia Podcast. Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to the Paramedia Podcast. Um, today, we're actually joined by Professor Father Francis Clooney. Um, we'll get into how he uh, wants to refer to himself in this particular sense, but he is a professor in Harvard University, and he was at Boston College, I believe, before, um, where he focuses really on the kind of the comparative theology, the intersection of different faiths, particularly the Catholic Jesuit view. And then um, with, in the Indian, in the Hindu sense, primarily, he, I think he started off with uh, Advaita Vedanta and then kind of shifted more towards um, Vishishta Advaita Vedanta. And he's done quite a prodigious amount of work um, in that field of comparative theology, comparative philosophy and comparative religious practices. So uh, Father Father Clooney, thank you for joining us and welcome to the program. Um, how are you doing on this uh, Saturday afternoon? Uh, fine, and Makunda, I'd like to thank you first for inviting me to be on your program. Any opportunity to exchange ideas is wonderful and I appreciate your reaching out to me to do this. As for how the afternoon is, it's end of the semester. It's a sunny, warm day in Cambridge, Massachusetts. But we're still shut down, wearing masks in public and so on. And of course, like everybody else, I'm hoping that this will end soon enough. But right. I'm basically fine. I, do you guys still conduct classes on um, via Zoom and stuff? Or do you, is it everything on hold? Uh, basically, we finished classes about 10 days ago. Uh, we're just finishing the exam period now, but everything is on Zoom. And now we're planning, uh, believe it or not, uh, Divinity School's graduation ceremony will be kind of a Zoom event with different faces coming on the screen. People have been pre-taping certain kinds of um, speeches and so on like that. Everybody's trying to make the best of it, and the promise is in the fall something else will happen. Who knows if it will be possible, but everything has been Zooming in the past few weeks. Okay. Well, you know, I'm glad that things are going as best as they can, given the circumstances there, and, and people are doing well. That's that's one of the most important things. Um, so, Father Clooney, um, can you kind of give us a, a, your background and kind of how you came into both your your strong uh, inclination towards the Catholic faith and why you decided to become, uh, you know, um, a, a priest or a part of the Jesuit order, and also why you decided to at some point do more comparative work and how you got into the Indian side too. Sure. I mean, how did I come to the Catholic faith? I think any good Hindu would appreciate this, being born into it. <laughs> and some grandparents and great-grandparents being Catholic, mostly Irish Catholic from Ireland. Uh, my grandparents came over around 1910. Uh, a little bit of German blood, but also Catholic. Growing up in, uh, born in Brooklyn, New York, growing up in New York City, Catholic grammar school, altar boy, uh, the nuns taught us in grammar school. I went to a Jesuit Catholic high school. And I think it was a very kind of uh, culturally as well as religiously Catholic environment in which I grew up. Even though 1960s New York was by no means uniform or monolithic, everything was changing all the time. But still, I was very much in a Catholic um, way of looking at life. And then, uh, you know, I had what we officially uh, call a vocation. And in, in high school, um, Jesuit high school again in Manhattan, New York, uh, felt a call to service, a call to holiness, if possible. And since I was in a Jesuit school, Regis High School in New York City, 
uh, was entered the seminary. So right after secondary school, I entered the seminary uh, to begin my 10 years of Jesuit training. Um, and 10 years later was uh, ordained a Catholic priest in 1978. So it's been a long time now. Um, and, and that could have been simply the trend of my life, was to be Catholic, Catholic priest. I was a classics major, Greek and Latin, in high school and college, both mm -hmm. philosophy and so on. But the, the other thing I'll add now, and then I'll let you ask more questions, would be um, part of the Jesuit training is some kind of tactical work. So after the first five years of training, we had to do uh, two years, three years of um, parish work, teaching work, something out side the classroom to see if we could do it. And by a long process of thinking about what to do, where to go, I asked if I could go to India for my uh, teaching experience. Mm -hmm. Why India? Because I was a classicist. I loved Latin and Greek. I thought, oh, maybe I love Sanskrit too. Uh, but also the, the uh, confronting the realities of a large Asian country uh, with the realities of rich and poor I was very much uh, moved, even as a young person, by Mahatma Gandhi, mm -hmm. Catholic by Mother Teresa, so asked if I could go and teach in India. And the answer came back, no, you can't, because you're probably in 1973, a long time waiting for a visa. These things are difficult. So I went to Kathmandu, Nepal. And for two years, I taught high school at St. Xavier's School, the boarding school in the Kathmandu Valley. And every boy I taught there was Hindu or Buddhist. And for me, as a young man, it was a great opening up experience to be in the culture, to walk around the beautiful Kathmandu city in those days, very unpolluted, very simple, and bring into the classroom some of the things I was learning. So uh, stories of the Buddha, Bhagavad Gita, Bhagavad Purana, lives of the saints, teaching my students in terms of not simply what I knew and brought from America, but what does it mean to be Hindu or Buddhist? Right. Well, I mean, uh, what really drew you towards the Jesuit order versus maybe the Franciscan order or the Dominican order? Because, you know, there's, I mean, like maybe a lot of my listeners don't know, but there's so many different orders within the Catholic Church of, of different uh, monastic paths. So what really pulled you towards the Jesuit path? Yeah, so to, to, to make this clear then, in the Roman Catholic Church and maybe analogs and other churches, um, there is the, the basic structure of the church with the parishes, the diocese, the archbishop, and then everything centers on Rome, the cardinals, and the pope. And ordination as a Catholic priest is simply within that structure. But there are many subgroups, um, and these are religious orders, we call them, either monastic orders like the Trappists or the Carthusians, or religious orders that were um, monastic, but also educators like the Benedictines uh, in the early centuries after Christ, and the Franciscans and Dominicans who were uh, dedicated to the new urban settings in 13th, 14th century Europe, uh, the Dominicans great preachers, the Franciscans working with the poor, and so on. And the Jesuits founded in the 16th century, uh, just as Europe was kind of exploding and going global, an order dedicated to mobility and to whatever needed to be done wherever in the world there was something to do with Jesuits would be able to go. But so that's the, the difference among the orders. I think if I was, you know, at 17, 16 years old, sat back and you know, did a, a study of the different orders, it might have been more methodical. But 
the basic answer to your question is I went to a Jesuit high school. I knew all the priests in the school. The Jesuit order has a long tradition of being an intellectual order uh, dedicated to scholarship and learning, particularly in places like India. Um, and it just made sense. Here's a smart kid who wants to be a priest, he's in a Jesuit school, become a Jesuit. Okay. Well, I mean, it, it's, it's actually interesting because I went to Catholic school too for most of my, well, not most of my, just all of high school. So I, I got really good Catholic education in Southern California, uh, modern day, you might've heard of it or not, but it's a, it, it's a pretty big uh, sports school primarily, but it's Catholic. But, uh, um, and it was, that was really my first real exposure to feeling different um, in terms of really recognizing that religion was a thing um, and that's, I, I, I would have to say, because my father, the way my father raised us was we weren't very cognizant of our religious background, even though we're Shri Vaishnavite, you know, Vishuddha background, the way he would always say is, you know, basically everyone just follows their own version of, of, of Bhagavan. So we're all part of the same family. But it was weird because when I, when, when I went to Catholic school, that was the first time they made me feel very different. Um, aside from just racially that I would be growing up being an Indian, only Indian person. So this was, it was different, but I also learned so much about the tradition and the faith and the entire, um, you know, the sacramental process. And it was, it's such a rich tradition of both visual and a liturgical practice. Uh, I think sometimes people forget that uh, it, it is, it, it's old, it's ancient, and it's, it, it's very meaningful for many people's lives. And it's, it's, it's a, in many ways, there's so some beautiful elements that you know you just can't like give up, especially in in human art and and uh, interaction. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, all that's so true, and it's beautiful to hear you say that, having gone to a Catholic school, a high school, um, because my ideal would be, you know, have strong identity, have Catholic schools, have. Protestant schools, Jewish schools, Hindu schools, why not? Buddhist schools, why not? Uh, Muslim schools, all of these schools should be you know, based in the traditions, the long traditions to which people belong. Yeah. Also be, have open doors and open windows and say, um, if you are not afraid to be in our faith environment, we welcome you with the faith you bring here because we're better off and we're exchanging with you. Right. That's not always the case. Sometimes yeah. religious people can be closed-minded and afraid of the outsider. But I think in the ideal, the Catholic tradition is like the Hindu is one of these traditions that kind of grows and accumulates and new things become part of it. Right. Uh, artists and music and literature and language everywhere in the world ends up being Catholic in some way. Um, so, I mean, everybody uses for, for Hindu tradition the image of the banyan tree. Right. Many branches and they're moving again and again. Catholic is not quite like that because of a, a central trunk, namely. Roman Church in Rome and so on, but in terms of how it grows, at its best, it grows in this um, unpredictable way of taking root in different cultures, including in the parts of the United States where we Sure. So, um, I mean, we'll get into a little more heftier topics in a bit, I, but I still want to like go through your background briefly, right? So you, you were in Nepal, you taught uh, Hindu Buddhist students, um, and what were you teaching there primarily? So it was a, a boarding school, St. Xavier's School in Jowalakal. There was a, another school out in Godavari, St. Xavier's School also. Um, the king of Nepal, uh, King uh, Trubuvan, yeah. around 1950, had invited the Jesuits in 
from from India because his son, the future king Mahendra, had gone to uh, the Jesuit school in Darjeeling. He wanted the Jesuits to help modernize the country, uh, to provide a modern educational system that would be then judged by the standards of Cambridge University, the Cambridge Overseas Exams, and so on like that. And the, the, the emphasis was on English medium education, which was lucky for me coming into the country without any Hindi, Nepali, Sanskrit, or anything. Uh, by the time I was teaching them, let's say fifth grade, sixth grade, all the way through high school, um, they were quite good in English. Um, so I was teaching mainly English language subjects, um, spelling and grammar, uh, reading. We read uh, Dickens, we read uh, Shakespeare plays, things like that. Um, some uh, speech and pronunciation, correcting the pronunciation, and something like that. The one course that made the biggest difference for me was called Moral Science. Hmm. And the idea was that the compromise, and this was true all over India, I believe, in the Catholic schools and the Jesuit schools in particular, all right, you're all Catholics and Jesuits, our students are almost all Hindu or Buddhist or in India perhaps Muslim too. You can't proselytize, you can't get them to become Catholic. But we want you to give them values. And the fathers generally didn't want to teach Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam. So there was this kind of in-between ground, this somewhat abstracted field called moral science. It's basically principles of ethics, principles of morality, why be good, why tell the truth, why care for your neighbors, social responsibility. And all of this was very noble and very important, I think, to arriving at common ground in the, in, as the country opened up. But it also um, wasn't satisfying to me because it was not dealing with where I was coming from religiously and I thought clearly for my students, it wasn't dealing with their backgrounds. Say, you know, Kathmandu um, Valley, Hindu, Buddhist, and so on. And therefore there was this kind of like, let's keep our faiths out of the classroom and talk on neutral grounds about goodness, virtue, and so on. I said, why not just bring it in the classroom? And so I started you know, bringing these texts into the classroom. The one that sticks with me, unsurprisingly, the longest is the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, parts of the Bhagavad Gita talking about the meaning of life, life and death, you know, uh, virtue, non-virtue, finding the Dharma in life, and, so like and then the, the role of Krishna uh, and other such figures uh, came into the classroom too. But it was mainly through you know, a boarding school with them 24 hours a day, teaching all these subjects, and this moral science was kind of the point, the meeting point, where I was one of the few who brought explicitly Hinduism, Buddhism, and the depression. And at this time, had you learned Sanskrit yet? Or were you just in the process of trying to delve into it? I was, um, I, I was in, so again, the, 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 um, the language of school was English. Right. Um, but but if you're, if you're talking about Bhagavad Gita and stuff, so, you know, bringing that into yeah. the classroom. I mean, I was, um, I was learning some Nepali just <laughs> to do anything outside the gates of the school. Um, but I was not yet studying Sanskrit. That didn't come until later. I'll tell you about that if you want. But basically, uh, in the school library, you know, found this little section on world religions and found a copy of the Bhagavad Gita, um, Ramayana, stories of the Buddha. Uh, one of the first beautiful books I ran into was Rabindranath Tagore's Gitanjali. Mm. Which is such a glorious text. I still love going back to it even now. So I was basically self-educating in terms of learning enough about Hinduism, Buddhism, that I could bring it in the classroom and then my students could you know, correct me, push back and forth about what actually these things were. Um, so 
but it was at that point self-taught rather than anything. Sure. And then, and then kind of what drew you towards wanting to study Hinduism and Hindu theology or Hindu philosophy at a deeper level then? So I spent the two years in Kathmandu. Yeah. And I had to finish my training to be a priest. So I came actually to Cambridge, Massachusetts, the Jesuit School of Theology on Brattle Street here in Cambridge. It's now over at Boston College across the river. Sure. But three, four years of you know, final part of theology study and so on. And that was pretty much like any other seminarian, basically Catholic theology, Catholic history, Bible study, preaching, ethics, something like that. But my experience in Kathmandu had really um, marked me for life because as a, you know, an Irish Catholic New York showing up in Kathmandu in 1973, this, as you might guess, was this extraordinarily opening, liberating experience. I mean, larger worlds that I had no knowledge of before uh, suddenly opened up for me. And I found in the process that I loved learning Hinduism and Buddhism. Right. Of going to temples, I love the festivals, I love reading the text. And I found, and this has been a theme throughout my life, I actually think it made me a better Catholic than I had been when I only been there. Because you test it, you see the other, you, you stop caricaturing the other, you learn from the other, you make comparison contrast. So all during my theology study, I'm thinking about this. What kind of, a, what do I want to do when I'm ordained? The Jesuits can do many things, uh, teaching, parish work, those days, we had Father Robert Dreinen, who was a member of Congress in the House of Representatives. You can do all kinds of stuff. Sure. And I said, do I really want to be a Catholic priest working in a Catholic parish or teaching in a Catholic high school or getting a PhD in Catholic theology? No, I don't want to do that. Because I had these experiences and these mind-opening experiences that had said to me, you should continue what you started doing when you were in Catholic do. So once I was ordained in 78, I got permission to start the Sanskrit study. And I took a year of Sanskrit at Harvard University as a special student, uh, which wasn't that difficult for me because Latin and Greek are very much in the same family. Sure. And then um, convinced the superiors, because I, I couldn't just make up my mind on this, to go to the University of Chicago to do my PhD in the South Asia language as a civilization department. Because I didn't want to be a, a, an amateur. I didn't want to like just do a little bit of this based on translations. I wanted to be able to read the classic text. And I wanted to do Sanskrit. And when I got to Chicago, um, I realized uh, fairly quickly I had to pick up another language. Uh, and the options that were offered in Chicago in those days, maybe still now, were Urdu, Hindi, Bengali, and Tamil. And talking around among the faculty, and particularly being influenced by A.K. Ramanujan, who was mm -hmm. a great scholar there, a great beautiful translator of Tamil, and so on. I, I chose Tamil, not knowing anything about South India, anything about Tamil. I chose that as my second language. But it wasn't planning, I'll study Sri Vaishnavism or I'll study Ramanujan. It was just, here are four languages, you have a week to pick one. And I picked Tamil, which I think was a really So, you know, my years in Chicago, I studied uh, Sanskrit and Tamil, which basically did grammar and all of that. And then when it got to my dissertation stage, I had a Fulbright, and 
83, finally went to South India for the first time. I was in Madras, I think it was called then, Chennai, and spent a year plus in um, near Mylapore in the uh, Santorin Mylapore area near the beach, living in kind of a Jesuit ashram. And I was working in those days not even on Vedanta yet, I was on Purva Nirmansa. Hmm. Actually, dissertation topic, Jaimini, Shabara, Marala, Prabhakara, and so on. So I get on my bicycle, which you could do in those days. You wouldn't get thrown on a bicycle because there's not that much traffic back in the movies. Bicycle into Mylapore, visit several hundreds houses, uh, and read texts with them all the time. And then the Mimamsa was always meant for me to be background that the Purva Mimamsa, the Dante Uttara Mimamsa, the later Mimamsa, back and forth between the two, and that is the Shankar Mimamsa, that was the plan. But being in Tamil Nadu and visiting Vaishnava temples, Shaiva temples, particularly the Vaishnava temples and the Divya um, Prabandham, the work to the Alvars, jumped out of me. This is uh, beautiful. And that's why I started even then, although it was not part of my dissertation, started uh, beginning to try to read the Right. So, I mean, that's it's really fascinating, um, especially given the you've got it to Tamil too, right? Because that's a, it, it, there's so much difference or, you know, vidyasam, as we say in Tamil, between, you know, Sanskrit and Tamil, right? In terms of, I mean, obviously there's different types of Tamil. There's like the more Brahmanized Basha, which I probably speak, versus the, you know, the regular Tamil that regular people in the street speak, you know, in, but it's such a different grammar and I would. I don't think worldview because it, it, it's. I mean, as far as I can tell, historically, it seems to be very much engrossed in the in the Buddhist Jain worldview anyway. From as far back as we can go into Agam and Buddha literature, so uh, so it, to me, it's just really interesting that you chose that. And then on top of it, it's you spent time in Tamil Nadu where you met with Brahmanas, I assume, to learn these texts. How did they? How do they feel about? teaching a Catholic priest? How do they feel about interacting with this knowledge that they would consider sacred to someone that's not an insider in that sense? Um, and how'd that happen? So just to be clear on the chronology again, so in 82, 83, I was yeah. in Madras, largely doing Sanskrit, Purva Mimamsa, and so on like that. Went back and finished my degree in 84 in Chicago, and then started teaching at Boston College. Right. My first sabbatical was 92, 92. And I went back and lived in the same Jesuit house, Santong, Mylapur area. And, and that time was dedicated to studying Divya Prabandham, Ramalva, Tilvaimari, and stuff like that. And, uh, and I think, um, on the one hand, uh, you know, and even today, I would say, uh, there are many uh, staunch Sri Vaishnava teachers who, uh, first of all, would say, until you're fluent in speaking Sanskrit in Tamil, uh, we're not going to bother with you. And I, I can read them well, but I'm not really fluent speaking. Sure. Um, you know, we're not going to bother with you. And, and and I think some would say that they were often too polite to say, you're an impure foreigner, you're not of our faith. This is none of your business. Right. Can't do this. But I, and I, I respect people, you know, who, who, who would I be to say, you can't set the boundaries. But I was, I was blessed in, in both in, in Mylapur, again, through the, through the Swami Shastri Research Institute there and, and visiting the local temples, the Keshava Paramal Temple, Madhava Paramal Temple, and so on like that. I found several teachers who were actually 
um, welcoming. Um, they actually, uh, one professor, Sampan Kumaran, who was a teacher at the Vaishnava Vivekananda College in, in Ayurveda, um, he actually um, became quite happy to teach me. We read the Bhagavad Vishayam, memorize uh, commentary on the Alvara and something like that. And I, I think there was a sense of, um, look, you're, you're not born here, you're not one of us, you have so many things that you can't do. But for a foreigner, you're pretty good. You're a foreigner, <laughs> a foreigner like you before. Um, and they were sort of welcoming. And I think it actually helped that I was a Catholic priest. Um, because, again, I, I wouldn't exaggerate or caricature this, but I think a number of these pundits and Brahmins and so on had met foreign scholars who come in. Basically, they, they want certain kind of knowledge, and then they get to go and do their own thing, historiography, theology, whatever. And not aren't really, you know, they, they're looking only for certain things. But I think they saw in me that here's a religious person, a person who wants to be religious. And that as we have a way of life, and we have practice, and we have faith, and we live our religion, this guy seems to be also living his religion. I never pretended to be a Hindu. They never asked me to become a Hindu. I never asked them to become Catholic. But there was a sense that the Catholic and the Hindu were meeting in a way that this was respectable, respectful, and that actually there was a, a way in which it, it began to work. That right. from outside, and it wasn't the first, but here was like somebody from the outside wanting to go deep into our tradition, not to criticize it, but to learn it. Right, and that's kind of the, the gist of your book here, right? Uh, Hindu God, Christian God. Is this really the, I mean, and, and that's one of the things that comes out very, very strongly in your in your writing and your, your body of work is, an inherent desire to be respectful and engage with the tradition as a tradition itself and not as someone that's coming in to be hypercritical, putting modern lenses or, or different perspective on the text, right? I mean, even coming from within your own tradition, I, I think you do a really, really amazing job of bifurcating your, your own faith and your belief and your and your tradition from what you're studying, which I think a lot of times people have difficulty doing and they read a lot of themselves into the text. And I think you, the work that comes from it is uh, what I sense is a, a level of deep love for the tradition, a deep love for even these great figures within the tradition like Ramar, Javitanta Deshika and Namalvar and all these people, but, and even a respect at some level for the conception of God in, in the, in the, in the Vishishtadvita tradition in particular, because I, I think you find parallels with the, the concept of God the Son in the Western side. Yeah, I mean, I, I think again, it, you know, I think any of us can say if our life was different, we might have done other things. So if I had learned Bengali, yeah, I might have been reading Gaudiya Vaishnavism, or I might have been reading Tantrika texts in Bengal, or, or reading you know, in Hindi, I might have been doing Tulsidas, whatever, uh, even in Tamil Nadu. It would be perfectly wonderful to be reading Shaiva Siddhanta in Myanmar's head. No criticism of doing that. But when it came to me, right from the first day when uh, I talked to A.K. Ramanujan again about what I was going to do reading Tamil, he had just done his little book of translations called Hints from Ground, uh, his translations of Namalbar. And I was fascinated both by the poetry, which was so beautiful. And also by the fact that you had this long tradition of commentary, commentary upon commentary upon commentary, 
which the Shiva text largely didn't have. And I think it happened to me again, this is where people might be surprised, but the fact of being a fairly traditional Catholic growing up in a Catholic family, in a Catholic parish, a Catholic school, seminary and all that, I appreciated tradition. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the, the Sri Vaishnava tradition has this parampara all the way back to Ramananda, Yamana, Alavandar, Nadamuni, and then back to the Alavars, back to God, um, that this made sense to me, that this is a tradition that is proud of being a tradition and wants to preserve it. And that for me, I, I, I'm not against um, argument, I'm not against debate. I think people can, you know, there, there are things we can argue about respectfully. Sure. But for me, there's much more, um, there is oceans of learning here that I can plug into. Uh, and I would say the same, you know, I've still never given up on Purva Mimansa, Advaita Vedanta, and so on. But in particularly, I think, as the Alvars and the commentators say, this is kind of a, a, a deep, sweet ocean of love and passion that pulls you in and educates you. And I, you know, that was something I could understand, even from the outside. It made sense to me. Sure. To respect that tradition. And I, I think um, people may be surprised when they hear this too, but I, I've often thought, and I, I've had some Sri Vaishnavas um, agree with me, there's a certain kind of harmony or resonance between Sri Vaishnava and Catholic. And that although the traditions are different and you can name all different ways and something like that, full traditions, poetry, mysticism, temples, sacramental worship, uh, the mortis in the temple, the, the blessed sacrament in the Catholic Church, saints, scholars, pilgrimages, festivals, all of this stuff seems to be coherent in Sri Vaishnavism in a way that I found was somewhat natural to my own sense of coherent Catholic practice. Sure. Other complications are possible, but this one seems to make a lot of sense. Sure. I mean, there's been quite a bit of work, I think, after you also uh, with people comparing a lot of Catholic theologians and thinkers with with Shubhishnava ones. Uh, there's John Schneider, I, I believe. Um, I th- yeah. So, and then there's a few other people, I think even uh, uh, Martin Ganari uh, spent some time doing uh, a yes. mixture, mixture of that uh, work too. So it's, it's, it's really fascinating because I, I also see the parallels when I read someone like uh, Maester Eckhart or, you know, uh, the works of even, even someone like, um, uh, what's the guy from Denmark again? Totally forget it. It slipped in my mind. Uh, Kierkegaard, yeah. It's, it's like this deep spiritual longing that, that, that you can sense and it's, it's beautiful. It's, it, it resonates a lot, like a lot of the, the, the bhakti literature within the tradition of Shilashtanism too. Yeah, I mean, I was, you know, not a, um, I, working on Sri Vaishnavism, I did a lot more than most people did. But yeah. for me, there were, you know, uh, Catholics in India, missionaries and Jesuits and others uh, studying Tamil literature. I lived with this um, Tamil father, Father Ignatius Ridayal who was an expert in, um, in Nyanmar's and Shaiva Siddhanta. Mm-hmm. Just quote the verses and something like that. He just had mastered so much of this and had so many uh, Shaiva friends. Um, the, the Ramanuja picture on the wall behind me um, is a painting that was um, given to me um, by John Carmen. Yeah. Uh, a longtime Harvard professor, wrote the famous book, Theology of Ramanuja. Yeah. I think he, as a Protestant Christian, um, I think recognized the, the richness of the theological tradition of Ramanuja. 
And I think when he saw my work and then was very encouraging when I came to Harvard, that yeah, this this kind of thing makes sense. So they, these connections can be made. And and nobody, you know, both in the tradition and also comparatively, nobody becomes the owner of the comparison. So I can't sure. say I work is the only way to do this. But in terms of the ability to go back and forth between the mystical, scholastic learning traditions of Catholicism and Sri Vaishnavism, I think it works. Sure. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the book I did about uh, six or seven years ago, is Hiding Places Darkness. Yes, yes. That book was an effort to take up the theme of the absence of the beloved, the Varaha Bhakti. And the idea that in both Vaishnavism and Catholic tradition, there is this mystical sense of the immediate presence of God, Jesus, Krishna, other ways of imagining God, and then these desperate moments of, of separation. And uh, the Song of Songs in the Bible, the poetry of St. John of the Cross, uh, the dark night of the soul, very resonant with the medieval traditions of Canterbury, Bernard of Clairvaux, and other great teachers, looking at uh, Namalva, looking at his songs of desolation and separation, uh, reading Nanjir uh, and Nandalai, the commentators of the tradition, reading the Dr. Deshika and others, uh, realizing that they understood and appreciated the, the presence and absence, the longing, the separation as part of the mystical path. Right. And we didn't, I didn't have to invent it to say, let's make this up on the Christian side to fit the Hindu side. Again. Sure. There were these two living traditions that were sort of begging to be introduced to them. Well, I mean, a part of this always strikes me as, as I think sometimes people lose sense of the concept that if divinity exists, I mean, obviously exists for all people, they all have different relationships, but those emotional kind of spiritual longing or feelings will be kind of universal. Um, so I imagine over time in any tradition or any, or any community, those kinds of literature and, and connections would develop. So it's just, it, it's this, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, in, again, I would kind of like in the Ramanuja sense, you, you use it as all these things are, you know, uh, what, what is it? Uh, visheshanas or the expressions or of, of divinity in the same way, I, I would imagine all these different traditions and these this poetry and work is the expression of humanity in the same way. Yeah, I mean, it's brilliant. I mean, I, you put it so nicely, I can hardly enter it. But, but just the fact that, I mean, again, this, you know, and different traditions are doing this in different ways, and Buddhists do it in another yeah. way and stuff. But, but Christians and Vaishnavas believe there is one Lord for the universe. Yeah. And that can be seen as combat, like, is it your God or my God? Let's fight about this. But the, the more positive sense is what you pointed to. Um, the depth of my tradition never makes it a private property, never makes it building a wall around it and keeping everyone else out. But God is constantly overflowing. God is sure. everywhere. And therefore, going deep in these traditions, I think, opens the door to going broad and wide and saying, if this is true, then this is a God or an experience for all people everywhere. Right. I mean, I mean, historically, the church wasn't that way, but I think w over the past 30 years, that changed, right? I think it was with John Paul II uh, that, that issued that all all paths uh, lead to heaven at some level? Well, I think, I mean, this changed over time. I mean, yeah, I, I think we, we can't be too romantic about this. And yeah. For, for a long part of the Catholic tradition, including 
with the, the Portuguese coming to India and then the Jesuits coming to India, St. Francis Xavier and so on, a very robust, um, even intrusive missionary work that rightly has been, you know, looked on un, unhappily, uh, you know, without, um, with regret by many a Hindu who saw their religion being disparaged. And I think that was the early modernity period in which the way to talk about the universality of God was to kind of come crashing in and say, we've brought you salvation. Right. I think in the past, um, you could say changing in the past hundred years, but in 1960s, there was the Council, Vatican Council of the Church. Yeah. And there, there was this kind of renewing the Catholic tradition, opening it up to live in the then 20th century. And, and one of the great themes of the council was in this document at the end of the council called Nostra Aetate, in our time, in our age, that whatever is good, whatever is true, whatever is holy in other traditions, the church will recognize that and respect it. Right. And, and this opened the door to a whole different attitude in the West, globally, with different religions, and in India too, of finding ways of affirming and respecting and learning from one another, rather than saying, I'm here now to defeat you and come back and come in. Um, and as you say, I mean, one of the great prophetic figures in this context was Pope John Paul II, who was the Pope for a very long time, from 78, I think, until 2005 or so. Uh, traveled the world, went everywhere, went to India, um, and, and kind of did these prophetic uh, events of going to a mosque, going to the Western Wall in Jerusalem. Uh, when he was in Madras in 1986, he gave a beautiful speech um, that is easily found on the web, I think, but in which he says at one point that when we dialogue with one another and meet one another, we meet God more deeply. Right. That saying to Catholics and to Hindus in Madras and Muslims and others, we're not just dialoguing like human exchange, which is a good thing in itself. Yeah. But to know one another is to know God better than we would if we had not done the dialogue. And this was a, a great new age, a new change in the Catholic tradition, uh, to be able to speak positively. And many theologians were trying to explain this. How do you keep a balance between commitment to my faith and the truth of my faith and saying this creates an opportunity to learn from your faith, not to bash your faith? Sure. It's a tricky thing, but it's actually true. If you really believe you have the truth, then you need not be afraid of the truth, whatever it is you have. Yeah, I, I, I totally, I, I think that's totally correct. It's, I mean, a lot of, a lot of people, I mean, a lot of Hindus also like to romanticize their past in some sense too, right? Like, like Vishishta Dwaita as a, a, both the philosophy and the theology was, has been also very, um, ossified in some sense, right? They wouldn't go to Shiva worships or Ganapati worships, or it always had to be the Vaishnavite iconography and, and Vishnu and one of his avatars of Sri. Um, instead of, and I think, instead of the perspective that I take is, if you do believe in the concept of, of that ultimately you're worshiping God in some form and that worship leads to God, um, as I think that the Ramanuja himself says is the whole concept of, of even how the Vedic texts refer back to Vishnu, his, his, his kind of uh, mimantic practice of, 
of showing how the text referred to that final goal. Um, I, I would say that same perspective can be applied when you approach any other religion. Like for me, when I go into the Catholic mass, obviously when I go to the mass, I won't partake in the communion because I don't think it's correct for, because I haven't become a Catholic. No, you go up with your arms crossed across your chest and you take the blessing. But it's, it's a sense where, where I feel, when I go there and I worship there too, I get a very similar sense of divinity. And, and, and it's not like for me, it's not, I'm not worshiping a Christian God. I'm just worshiping God and in, in a certain manifestation in that world. And I don't know how you approach it when you go to the temples or, or any other place. I mean, if, if you're open to talk about it, you know, I would love to hear what your thoughts are when you engage in a, the cultural, you know, milieu of, of worship in different cultures. Let me get to that. I wanted to just say something about this idea of um, how traditions, you know, both Hindu and Christian can become rather rigid and inward looking. We have in the Catholic terminology a distinction between interreligious dialogue and ecumenism. Mm -hmm. Ecumenism is Christians learning to talk to one another better. Yeah. And a long history back to the Protestant Reformation, the churches of the East, and the Roman churches, and all like that. It goes back to this Greek schism, too. Yeah, this, right, exactly. The schism, the Reformation, and often um, you know, uh, being as hard on one another as would be on anybody else in the world. And, and realizing that how can we have benevolent and open relationships with Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims if we're shaking our fist at the, you know, the nearby Protestant church. No, so it has to be within the closer circle, more conversation also as it broadens. I would say, but it, uh, if it could be just taken as a recommendation, sort of what you were saying, for, for Sri Vaishnavas, for Shaivas and Tamil Nadu, to, to learn more from one another, to have more yeah. conversation, Bhagavad Vaishnavas, Tengalai Vaishnavas, more conversation, to learn from one another is a good thing. It's not a way of you know, making the faith impure or alterating the faith, but it's a way of learning that I think every tradition should undertake. And then, of course, in Tamil Nadu, but also all over India, uh, Hindus learning from Muslims, sitting together and reading holy texts together becomes a very but on your other point, um, we can talk about that some more if you want, but the um, visiting the holy places. And I think it's wonderful that you would come to Mass and then go up and receive the blessing, as you said. That's a beautiful thing. I loved, in, particularly in South India, where there seem to be many more temples, uh, going into many a temple, if it was not seen as an intrusion. Um, and, and most of the temples in Mylapur, let's say, there is no bar. Yeah. No exclusion. Some big temples, like the Kapaleshwara Temple in Mayapur, uh, you know, the inner sanctum, Hindu zone. Right. Free Hindu zone. And I thought, it's too bad, I won't be able to do darshan, receive the darshan, but who am I to you know, complain too much about that? But wherever I could go in a temple, sort of like you, I mean, I'm not a practicing Hindu. I can't say that I'm simply one of the devotees here. But it's a spiritual experience for me to be in, in front of the Murtis, to circumambulate, to make respectful gestures, even to receive prasadam. Yeah. But these things, I think, are signs of um, both human respect and also religious respect, of being open to the presence of God and the other and moving back and forth without going too far, without intruding or without being a Right. And I think it, it seems to work. And I think most of the people I met in, 
in my liberal over the years seem to appreciate that I came, you know, carefully and, and didn't intrude, but also loved it. And I, I I always find this um, this issue is is, is 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 it's actually a little saddening to me because I have noticed since I mean I'm in my 40s uh, so when I first started going to I was born in India and then like raised in the U.S. but when I as far as I can remember the 80s and 90s temples really didn't have this these signs that said oh, only come in if you're Hindus except for maybe one or two. I've just seen this this proliferation of of temples now all having the signs where they pr prohibit people from entering and and it saddens me to some level uh, because uh, and, and here's the the issue I tend to have with the way Hindus think about it is they want to talk about the greatness of their temples as being these cultural centers these centers of art and learning in the past and then how now they're not but if you just keep them only places of pure sacredness and not a, a place of human interaction, then you're not going to build back to that, that world that you're dream, dreamily looking at. You know, for me, it's if that I, I love the architecture in the temple is not just all purely spiritual and, and it's, it's very earthly. It's Lokita, right? So well, I don't like this preventing other people from entering. I mean, I, I get it. I get it from the, insofar as you want to show respect, but if people are entering or showing respect, you should, it should be open to everyone, right? It's like what a lot of times what the churches do within, you know, you, you can go to Notre Dame, they'll do mass in Notre Dame, but people will still be walking around and, in, in, and peacefully and respectfully enjoying the history, the tradition, the, the, the value that these locations bring. In the same way, you know, I, I wish that these temples would do that too. Yeah, I um, would talk to some of my Sri Vaishnava friends in Tamilad and Sri Rangam and so on. But Sri uh, Vaishnavism, above all, should be welcoming because yeah. it's not what the God, God is accessible. God, all are welcome. Don't exclude uh, the Thayar Sanidhi and Sri Rangam where the goddesses right. will turn nobody away. I mean, nobody is excluded, nobody's left out. But as Catholics may have certain reasons for being open, there are such deep reasons in, in Sri Vaishnavism for being accessible, yeah. being, being welcoming, that are, are deep in the faith, not a trashing of the faith, but deep in the faith. Because we are Sri Vaishnavas, we are open. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you, and I, but I also think this, a lot of this is, has been this reaction against uh, whatever injustice is real and perceived for years and they're trying to take back their culture, take back their world. I get that, but it, it, to me, is that's a step back, you know, like we should be, we should be engaging, like as, even the concept of identity of Hindu politics or identity politics that way is very sad to me. Um, just because I think we lose the sense of the, the universality of, of what I think uh, much of the Hindu thought is, is the, the tolerance, mutual respect and the connection to all beings. If you lose that, then what, are we really engaging in a, a dialogue anymore with the world? Or are we just trying to mark our ground and say, this is who we are? I, I don't know. It, it's, it's, a, it's a tension I, I, I tend to have uh, within myself. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm, I'm obviously living in the West and I'm not an Indian. And yeah. Indian. I, I think that um, one should look, people like me should look with a certain um, sympathy and respect on the changes taking place in India Simply because it's, it's you know, in a non-trivial way, it's kind of, it's growing things. I mean, it's, 
it's independent India is still going through the different phases of figuring out what does it mean to be a great nation, what does it mean to be a nation with deep roots in Hindu tradition, but also with many, many people of other faiths. And then what is India's persona on the world stage? And that I don't think one can wave a magic wand and say, oh, it's obvious. So we can do it the way we did it in 1947. But rather, no, there is this sense of having to learn how to be, let's say for Hindus in India, how to be Hindu in the modern world in a way that is respectful of a very complicated culture like India, of everybody else who lives there, but to be proud to be Hindu and, and throw off the colonial heritage and all that. But it may take time for individuals and families and even the whole society to, to, to become really comfortable with Hindu India. So, but, but I mean, I want to ask you something then, because I mean, you're saying quite a few times that you're you're not Hindu, but in the same sense, that that term, right? I mean, as a Hindu, people aren't we're not faith based, right? In, in the same in the same way that we don't have to have a certain set of set of beliefs to be Hindu. So, how do you term when you say you're not a Hindu? Are you saying you're not a Hindu because you're Catholic? Therefore, that position is grounded that way. Uh, but by the uh, the idea of exclusion, or is it more like a sense you're not Hindu because you're not engaging in the cultural practice? I, I, I mean, those are these are the weird, ambiguous questions that exist. Yeah, and any um, if I put my scholar's hat on, always in class I'll have to talk about you know the history of the word Hindu, and the word Hindu is really not a very traditional word, in right? Hindu, and therefore that these labels are not very helpful, and then we end up using them anyway because we. Right. Need somewhere. Um, but I think I would first of all agree with what you're saying is that um, the idea that, that this is a, a, a compartmentalized institutional religion, you're a member or not, is not very helpful because it's, it's tradition, it's family, it's a way of life, uh, it's belonging. It is religious, it is mystical too, but all these other levels, it, it's somewhat analogous under very different circumstances to being Jewish. Right. Being Jewish you know, can mean being a practicing, reformed, conservative, orthodox Jew of various degrees. But even if you're born of a Jewish mother and you're secular, you're still a Jew. Right. The idea that being Jewish, being Hindu, are intertwined with culture and family in complicated ways is, is part of the reality. Now, you know, that, again, that would, would be another way of saying, if I'm white American born in New York, well, that there are reasons why yeah, I'm not an Indian also. Right. The, the challenges that one has that if, if one has this strong sense of family, culture, belonging, culturally, and so on, is a complicated reality of a country like India, where there are many, many other people who are truly Indian, but not of like Vaishnava kind of faith. Sure challenges to say, we who are Indian and Hindu welcome every Indian of every faith tradition, even though it's complicated, um, because birth, blood, family, customs, food, customs, everything are interconnected. But it, it's, it's sort of different for being Christian, I think, because we're not, you can easily become 100% Christian just by getting baptized. Um, right. There's no, there is Irish Catholicism, Polish Catholicism, Filipino Catholicism, South Indian Catholicism, but it's not as intensely connected. And I think Buddhism, Islam, and, and Christianity 
have a different way of kind of connecting many cultures in one thing. Whereas I think maybe Hindu and Jewish, without oversimplifying, have other ways of being of the land, being of the blood. And, and, and that raises, it gives great possibilities, but also raises challenges about needing to respect everyone and being inclusive as well. Right. In one's family identity, physical identity. And, and, and how do you deal with the, the, the idea of, of inherent, like either proselytization or the idea of exclusive nature of truth with the work you're doing? Well, I think the, um, the phenomenon of being a Roman Catholic is it's a kind of both and tradition. And this goes back, um, I mentioned before Vatican II in the 1960s, mm -hmm. but even before that, that there's a way in which it's unrelentingly, unapologetically, Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And even the old slogan, no salvation outside the church. But there was, even in, in pre-Vatican II times, a sense of, and it is the mystery of God, how God's grace is shared with people who are not visibly in the church. So there's that side of it, which tends toward exclusivism. Mm -hmm. But it, it's rarely been expressed by Catholics as they're all damned or they're all lost. And the other side of the Catholic is you know, Catholic with a capital C, the Catholic Church, Catholic with a small C, based on the Greek word, is just universal. Right. Inclusive. And I think the tension between, as we were saying earlier, well, if you are practicing Catholic, then you have the truth of the Church, the truth of the creed. The truth of Christian tradition. We have to struggle with the gospel passages. I am the way, the truth, and the life. By no other name shall you be saved. The death of Jesus is the way of salvation. But say that the very God who revealed in Jesus is also a God who says, My great commandment to you is to love one another. Right. My great commandment is to, to bring the good news to the entire world, which is often, too often, I think, been reduced to bring the gospel to the whole world as make as many converts as possible. And I think it's important to bring Jesus to as many people as possible so they know who Jesus is. That, that can be a beautiful thing. But if it's a matter of winning converts, I think the Catholic Church is not about you and, and people, when they talk about the missionaries and the, the street corner preachers you know, rebuking, reviling our religion and all that, often I would say Hindus and Muslims in India need to be more careful about which Christians. Sure. The Catholic view, I think, is much more nowadays to live in respect for the neighbor. And it's pretty much a doctrine of the Catholic Church now that we do not believe that non-Christians are God. But rather, God's salvation is for all. How that works out in Christ is still always arguing. So I think in my work, um, it's a matter of, on the one hand, not saying I'm going to read these texts and study these things and I know they're all wrong and I know it's all untrue, but I'll study it anyway. That would be pointless. Yeah. I think to go to the other extreme and say, well, I'm, I'm just a scholar and I'm interested in truth here, truth there, and I'm not really personally engaged in any of it, would also be untrue to who I am. So again, the Catholic priest, the Jesuit, say Mass in the morning and so on like that, all of that is me. And then say, how do I bring that dynamic of being a believing? Catholic Christian, Catholic priest, Jesuit, to my studying of the Bhagavad Gita, Corbin and Osa, 
through life's little hymns and something like that. I think, because I'm an intellectual, there is vast possibilities in just opening your mind and learning something. Um, I think the people who have the easiest time making judgments about other religions are the people who know nothing about them. Yeah. When you begin to know, you realize, oh, it's more complicated than I thought. Oh, even if I don't like this, well, that's part of a web of things that are actually quite interesting. And so you begin to realize that the truth is very large and complicated, and that holding the truth should enable you to find the truth elsewhere as well. I don't think that means to be a relativist saying, oh, it's all true, but rather this kind of dynamic of truth meeting truth. Yeah. Without, I'm not a bishop, I'm not the pope, I'm not judging, I'm learning. So, find a way of not going to one extreme yeah. of exclusivism or the other extreme of a relativism where it's all the same. Right. So, so what about the, uh, the I guess, the Shuvayshnivite faith has really helped reinforce or, I guess, bring more value to your, your faith or in your practice? Well, on and, and two levels, and I could say other things about the Vedanta and so on. Yeah. Focus on Sri Vaishnava. I mean, the, the sheer fact of Sri Vaishnavism has, for me now, for 40 years or so, been quite eye opening. Um, the fact that there is this tradition that goes back to Ramanuja, back to Navanuni, back to the Almars, and before that even, um, with such beautiful poetry, with such beautiful worship, with uh, intellectual traditions that are quite extraordinary. With teachers, admirable teachers through the generations and all that, with subtle mysticism, theologies of grace, uh, God's presence in the world, uh, the Bhagavatas need to love one another and serve one another, all these things that all of this existed, has existed for a very long time in India, has been for me very eye opening. That if we're talking about the so called world religions, that is a fairly vague and somewhat boring category. But if you start getting particular and realize, take for example the Sri Vaishnava, this is this vast, rich, holy world of learning and practice that I can only admire and, and learn from. And I, I think by analogy, you know, suppose I had another life and I could study Japanese Buddhism. Sure. I could study uh, Shia, Islam, and Naran, or Persia. Um, I, I could do other things. But in what's been given to me in this life, the Sri Vaishnava has opened all these doors. And I think, again, I, I said to you earlier on, I think when I was talking about Kathmandu, this mm -hmm. made me a better Catholic. Reading the Vaishnava texts, I think, has always improved my Catholicism. Now, if you take a saint like Namalva, instead of open the greatest of the albums, and you see his longing for God, you ask yourself, do you long for God like that? You see his um, uh, beautiful kind of theological poetic claims about the creator of the universe and God's the avatars. Do, do I have anything so beautiful to say about Jesus Christ and the incarnation? Um, his teaching that became formalized as the teaching on Charanagati or Patati of is it can't you Christians, can't you surrender yourself completely to God, take refuge with the feet of the Lord? Um, what we have only indirectly in Catholicism, um, Sri Lakshmi, and the beauty of the goddess tradition, 
and all of the graces and the the goddess and so on. All of that, as I even wrote a book on this topic, Hindu, uh, Divine Mother, Blessed Mother, Hindu Goddesses, the Virgin Mary, mm-hmm. which was partly about the Sri Gunaratna Kocha, Exoparashra Butter, on the goddess, and sort of saying, I've now been able to rethink and rediscover the Virgin Mary in my Catholic tradition because I see how important Sri Lakshmi is in my tradition. So it's not, again, it may not seem logical to some people. How can you possibly say that which one is true? But it's not about that kind of dichotomy. It's about learning and reading the texts of the goddess and the Malvar's poetry and the commentaries and stuff like that endlessly kind of gets me to think about other aspects of my Catholic faith and bring them back to life. I mean, the, the simpler thing is, you know, if you if, if when we're not in a shutdown society, if you travel to another country and you go to another part of the world, you know, if, I, if I go to Italy, I don't become an Italian. That's true. I go to the Philippines, I don't become a Filipino or Chinese. Chinese. But if you travel, you try different food, you meet different people, you hear different music, different language. When you come back to your home country, everything's a little bit different. And I think religiously that, that is very true. You go and you learn from the other in depth. And you come back and you're being Catholic, being Hindu, being Buddhist, whatever, is different and all the better because you've learned from what you've And I think that's that's very profound. And some people want more and say, well, which one is true? Or why don't you just say they're all true? And I'm saying, I want I want you to visit. I want you to learn deeply from the traditions other than own. See what you learn. Um, you know, for the people here who don't know about anything Hindu, read the Bhagavad Gita. Listen to it being chanted online. Um, read the Vidyanath Tagore's Kitanjali. Learn from these texts. And then come back to me in three years and say, okay, now what do you think about what's true and false? But if people, I just want to know the answer. I just want to know you know, uh, should I convert to the other religion? I just want to know which is true. I'll say, come on, learn something first. Um, do a little bit of work. Um, your faith is not going to be lost if you learn something. Having an open mind is a beautiful way to testify. Right. I mean, I, I mean, both. I, I I feel like both traditions and probably all religions, in some sense, do talk about. I mean, at some level, this is a lifelong struggle and a process of trying to recognize and grapple with the truth, right? Even within, even within the Sri Vaishnava tradition, even if you accept, uh, except for something like Baranyasam or Samashranam, that, that entire engagement is continual with God or with, 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 even with the Gita, right? Like he says, you know, I, I believe it was chapter two or three where he says, even if you fall away and, and lose your path, you never, you never lose what was gained. In the spiritual in the spiritual pursuit right so the spiritual pursuit in and of itself is is the goal and and the nature of even moksha in the shumashtama tradition doesn't stop when you have moksha when you get liberation it's this constant relationship that is fostered with brahman who's truth or vishnu who's truth or you know or god it, it, jesus or whatever we want to call him that truth you're always in a relational dialogue with them and, and engaging with them and that is the process of of, of love, right? Because, I mean, th- that's kind of what love is, constant engagement. Yeah, and how absurd would it be like a, 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 a couple saying, okay, I've loved you, I've done that thing, now we're finished with love, because we did that. 
<laughs> the love is a lifelong thing, and you see you know, young couples in love, and then you see people 85, 90 years old, they still love each other. You don't say, well, I did that, then they're over them. Yeah. I think uh, both Christian and Vaishnava saints, Hindu saints, um, you know, have this sense that the more you know the mystery of God, the more you experience the grace of God, you realize that you're always only at the beginning of this vast experience. So, like, um, you go, you know, I, I, I'll drink up the entire ocean. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll drain it dry. Well, you can't do that. And the more you realize the reality, the more you realize I'm only at the beginning. And I think it's a problem when people say, okay, I understand it, I've got it, I've figured it out, basically it's done. And it's, not, it's never done. And I think the greatest mystics, even on their deathbed, say, oh, there was so much more to learn, there was so much more to love. If only I could have lived another hundred years, I could have done this, done this, experienced that. Now, I think um, a little I've, I've studied about Vaikuntha and the, the kind of sense of being in heaven forever is somewhat like the beatific vision in Catholicism. And being in heaven is is not really sitting on clouds and playing harps and something like that. But it's this, when the Catholic term, beatific vision, the vision of happiness or the vision that plunges you in happiness is like an eternal darshan. Yeah. If you spend all of the rest of eternity in this kind of blissful state of seeing God and being seen by God. And the longer you've been in eternity, you realize you've only become. Yeah. Yeah. Right now, if you don't get bored, you're looking for something else to do because you're entering into a mystery unlike anything physical and limited that we've experienced in this world. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I know that you have uh, time constraints, you have work you got to get done. So just a couple more questions and then we'll just round it off. So, you know, um, so how, how, we talk, we've been talking a lot about the syncretic nature and comparative nature of religion. How, how can one deal with the, the difficulties of engaging with ideas or beliefs that, that are kind of antithetical or one would, would have issues with um, in, in another religion? And how, how does one do that in a way that can be effective and respectful? Well, I think um, it, it begins by precisely honoring the question that you're asking because I mean, a lot of my work is extremely um, positive and very um, happy about the work. Right. I've said to people, well, that's that's me and that's my job. Yeah. But I think to ask the question, well, what about the hard parts? And what about the things that you positively disapprove of? Even if it's not on like a fundamental level of, I just can't abide foreign gods or something like that. What about social practices? What about the treatment of people? What about historical events? that are of great uh, concern. How could you people have done that? There's a lot of that kind of thing. Um, and, and I, but I think it's a matter of um, the same process of learning and not shooting off your mouth before you actually know something. And th this gets extremely complicated very quickly. And I, I may not be the expert for this. But let's say for, for, for many Western Christians and for many Christians in India, caste is always an issue. Mm -hmm. And it, caste can be an issue among Christians too, so it's not only the Hindu caste. Right. But people often have the sense that it's it's an unfair hierarchical system, that many people, Dalits, suffer greatly. You read in the papers and all that about some horrible event in a village somewhere sure. where 
to a young couple of are, are killed because of violating their family's expectations and so on. Um, these, these are things that are really, really difficult to deal with. And I think I don't want to be the armchair Harvard professor who says, oh, everybody should be tolerant because it's not my family, it's not my village. Right. I'm not the one who can't get a job because of caste restriction and issues like that. But what I do say, I am a Harvard professor, and therefore some of us at least should know what we're talking about. Right. People, you know, people do this both uh, with, over the years, um, people in India, people here. Here's a clipping from the New York Times about some atrocity. What do you think? And they said, well, I, I'm not there. All I know is that clipping sounds pretty bad. I'd have to like go and spend a month or two there to figure out what happened. And that rushing to judgment and saying that's an abomination um, is, I think, hasty. And it, it doesn't help when people judge before they know what they're talking about. Yes, it, it's, it's wrong to kill a young couple. It's wrong um, to, to exclude people from jobs because they're coming in racism. Um, it's wrong to leave some people in poverty and other people get wealthy. But in terms of, I feel better now because I've now condemned certain things. Right. No, you might feel better if you actually, A, did something about it, and did something about it knowing something about it. And so I say, you know, for that kind of ethical issue, everybody needs to take a deep breath, slow down, and say, how can somebody like me do something that's useful to people who are suffering? Right. And there are many different opinions you can talk around. A very different kind of issue would be a theological issue. So I've been part of panels at the American Academy of Religion elsewhere on rebirth, uh -huh. birth and rebirth. And so uh, this is often held up as a, a strong difference between Buddhists and Hindus and Christians, Jews and Muslims, one life and many lives. And I don't think there's an easy way for that to go away. Mm -hmm. Many of my predecessor Jesuits who went to India tried to logically refute it to say, well, this couldn't possibly be true. Here are the reasons of why reincarnation is not plausible or possible. Right. I don't think today we're in a position where we even trust each other enough to be able to have a decent argument. Therefore, I think it's a matter of saying, yeah, these are two very different views. It seems objectively speaking, how can they both be true at the same time? Then, do we rush to judgment and say, okay, let's vote how many are in favor of this view, how many are in favor of that view? Well, what could that do anyway? But could I find out, could I learn and study what is it that people who believe in multiple lives actually believe? How does that affect the way they live this life? Right. How does it affect karma, responsibility, ethics in this life? And then you Christians, you believe in one life only. How does that change the way you live your one life only? How does that affect you? what you think it means to die and so like that. And I think there's so much of conversation that's not taking place about the things that we differ on. So, I mean, I guess I'm sort of not giving any very strong <laughs> answer, but, but agreeing with you that um, in the long run, the kind of theological learning across traditional boundaries, the ethical learning, should take up the difficult issues, but not say, well, we have like two weeks to figure this out. And right. It's too easy to sit in your own place and, your own, and say, well, those people over there, they're pretty awful because they do that. Right. I think that's usually simplistic and unfair. Sometimes people need to be them, thugs who run governments, uh, bullies, 
people who race through slums uh, violently, people who uh, colonize other countries and strip away their natural resources. Right. I think we think for them. But when it comes to the realities of are you going to do anything about it, other than simply feel better by condemning it, then there's a learning process. And unfortunately, learning takes a longer time. And, and you're right, but one of the, the issues in this day and age, and maybe always has been, but it's more exasperated today, is, is this idea of perspectival nature of, of, of information, right? Like how you phrase things, what is put in. It, it, it changes fundamentally how our brain works and the way we think about things. And, I, and, and the difficulty, and we see this today with fake news and with, with slanted news, it's it's almost impossible in some sense to get a clear grasp of what is going on. Um, and I, I used to be a lawyer. I used to be, be a prosecutor. So even having in New York, by the way, Brooklyn. <laughs> so you're a tough guy. Then. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Not at all. I, I, maybe at one time in my life now I'm much more peaceful. Um, but it's just the nature of, uh, of, of having any sort of salt, uh, solid ground to stand on, in terms of knowing things in the world is is so shifty, right? And and if, and for people to have a sense of what that means, when we talk about like social reality is also difficult. Number one, and it's it's layered by things of like you said caste, but it's also layered by perceptions of caste and history of caste and and how Indians had originally thought of Varna Jati versus how it came into be late. I mean, there's so much entangled here that what we're dealing with today whatever issues are, is this tangled mess from 2,000, 3,000 years ago, exasperated by what happened 400 years ago, played even more by the past 100 years. It's, it's, but it's the way we talk about these things and the fact that we can't talk about them in any real sense. Like the moment we bring up, okay, but maybe it wasn't this case, you're called uh, Hindutva or you're called the leftist or you're called, you know, they're called all these names. We're not able to have a dialogue. Even when you're talking about theologically, these positions, when people talk at each other, and I feel like, in fact, Christians of, of most denominations and persuasions have better dialogues in some sense with atheists than they do with uh, other religious traditions. Because, I, I and, and I'm still trying to figure out why, maybe it's because a lot of the people they speak to from the atheist tradition came from that particular tradition, so they understand the, the underpinnings of it. And when you're talking to someone else from another tradition, you have no concept of what their underpinnings are and how to show respect in that sense and vice versa. No, I just, I, first of all, I admire that insight that uh, Christians and secularists often can talk to each other because it's arguable that, as you just said, I mean, much of modern secularism arises out of a Christian view of the world, and there are different Catholic views, Protestant views, and so sure. on. But that secularism is kind of the is one of the children of Christianity in Europe, and therefore, oh, we're, we're siblings, we're related in some way. But then to see people of other faiths in other parts of the world, and, and say, my, you know, these people don't even think the way we do; they don't even speak the same language. Uh, what are we going to do about that? And again, some people want to speed it up and say, well, we don't have time for all this learning. And, it's nice for the professor, but we, we don't have time to go back and study these things. We're only interested in what's happened in India since 1995 or something like that. So let's speed it up. And, it, and my job as an educator and your job doing podcasts like this and so on is to say we can't rush to the point of favoring ignorance over learning. Right. 
I mean, texts like the Bhagavad Gita and their Christian parallels, you know, ignorance, delusion, fear, anger, jealousy, lust, hatred are all interconnected. And part of our problem, even just apart from religion in American politics, is that we seem to have devolved into armed camps, literally armed camps in some cases, where my immediate reaction is, you're a liar, I'm angry yeah. at you, and I have nothing to do with you, I'll never even talk to you because you're the enemy. There's something morally defective and spiritually defective about the inability to respect and learn from the other, even if they're really different. And so if, if Christians and Hindus or Christians and Muslims or Muslims and Hindus are in a position where animosity is at the fore, then I think everybody should go home in their own tradition, pray, fast, meditate, beseech God for help in order to gain a certain humility and a certain nonviolent attitude. And I totally agree. And I think one of the things that I think a lot of times people forget is the solution matters as much as the process, right? Because, you know, even though there might be a correct solution at the end, if the process is not in some way fair and, 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 and allows people to go through their emotional and, and, and mental processes through that, that, that entire time frame, then what you end up having is animosity at the end. You have this very strong animosity with each other. I hate you because this happened, as opposed to saying we, the process lets people do things together. It's the way I see it, it's just like sadhana, right? Like the, the goal of sadhana is to get to this moksha or beatific vision or relationship with God, but the way you get there is very important too, and, and how you build that relationship. I taught a, a seminar this semester on the Bhagavad Gita uh, with a number of graduate students. Um, and we use the great commentary, Madhusudana Sarasati. Yeah. One of the best commentaries. And, and one of the simplest points that came up at the beginning of the course is, so Arjun is in trouble, he's having a crisis, and he says to Krishna, please tell me what to do. And, and the Gita could have been over like in about three shlokas. You know? <laughs> All right, Arjun, here's what you do. you do. You get up, you put your armor back on, and you plunge into battle. And, and, and look at my form. <laughs> Let's do this quickly. But the whole point of it is you say sadhana, where Krishna has to kind of unravel the misunderstandings and the uncertainties, delusions that Arjuna has about himself and that the world has about itself to get Arjuna to begin to know who he is and to look for the best resources of his tradition to become a person who has equanimity, samatva, like being able yes. to see with an equal eye and then be able to finally see Krishna. And then he can say at the end of the Gita what he could have said at the beginning of the Gita, Arjuna, therefore rise up, go and do your duty. But the whole point is, as you said, I mean, unless you, it's not just the, the right answer that matters, it's how do we get there? Yeah. People, you know, if only the Supreme Court would decide this matter and make them all do what I want, or if only we could just vote on this. Well, no, that, that leaves out the human factor of yeah, and that's why ritual is so important, right? Ritual makes that process a very, I mean, it's not less, less convoluted, less rocky, and it, 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 it integrates with you. And I think people like to throw out the term ritualistic or, you know, it, it doesn't need to be there, but ritual is the foundation of human behavior, human patterns, right? And, yeah. Sorry. It's for, for any practicing member of a faith tradition, 
you know, on the one hand, you can say, well, wait, you, you did those rituals when you were like seven years old, when you were 10 years old. Why are you still doing this when you're 40 or 60 or 80? Right. Same old thing. Why don't you do something, you know, join with the movies, try something different? No, it's, it's about um, as you grow, the rituals resonate with you differently. Like for me, the Catholic Mass, I mean, all of these things resonate. They, they have a part in my life. I keep changing in relationship to the same words that I say at mass as a priest and stuff like that. And I think, you know, going through Darshan in the temple and the, the shlokas being recited and the prasadam and stuff like that, all of this is a long, slow transformation of life over a long period of time. And to write it off as ritualism, there are some cases where people may be so prissy about the purity of the ritual and the fact that the main thing about our ritual is that you shouldn't even be here or that our ritual is better than your ritual. Yeah, they can be bad. Or ritual is so important that I don't care about the starving people outside. There's something wrong with that. Right. But to say that repeating rituals and being part of a community of ritual practice over a whole lifetime is not ritualism, but it's, it's a, a ritually rich way of life. And that's, right. We have yeah. rituals like, even very secular people end up doing the same things at the same time every day. So why not have good spiritual ritual instead of just secular? I mean, like myself, I'm, I'm agnostic with theistic leanings, but I do have the rituals that I've been taught and I follow them, not for any other purpose than I, I feel like it's important to keep these things alive and, and to engage with it. And then it's funny, it's actually interesting because my dad prays for two, three hours a day. Um, and and I, I, yesterday I was listening to one of his prayers um, that he says, and I just never paid attention before. And, and then I, and I recognized that it was from Vishnu Purana, where the relationship between Sri and Vishnu is outlined, where basically, you know, when he is born as a man, she is born as a woman. So it goes to the entire liturgy of different other thoughts that he takes and how she corresponded. And I, and I remember I read it a long time ago, and then I never put it together that this is what he is chanting. And then it struck me in some sense of how important this, these rituals are, even when you start off not knowing them and you learn about them through your life and you might go read it in a book, but you're, you haven't really taken it to heart at the, at the core of your ritual. Yeah, and I, I think that's part of it, that we, we should not um, think that we're entirely in control even of who we are, much less how we will be 10 years from now. And the, the part of the thing about ritual in community is that we don't get to make it up ourselves, but it's given to us. We practice it, it's passed on to the next generations. Precisely so that you gave a beautiful example that it's something you've heard years ago, and then suddenly you hear your father chanting this, and suddenly it resonates with you. Right. Actually, listen, you gave it a chance, and he's there doing it. That if you said, okay, I did that, didn't help me, drop it, never again end up missing something um, and I think we have to give ourselves time um, we have to give our religions time to teach us over a long time but also realize that it takes me a long time to become a better person and to be able to say don't sell myself or my religion or my neighbor or the other religion short by saying I'm sorry we have an hour to decide which is the right one right it's a lifetime thing and whether you have one life or many lives uh, the life we happen to be in at the moment, we don't know it's going to end. But every day of it until the end of it is only one minute. 
Right. So, uh, Father Clooney, I know it got longer than we said that you had time for. Uh, thank you. Do you have anything else that you want to maybe bring up or say? Um, anything new you're working on? I, um, well, I would say two things. I mean, one, what am I working on at the moment? Um, I just, um, I just, I, I'm publishing a, a translation soon of the, the least known work of Worship, a new translation I put together be coming out soon in the International Journal of Hindu Studies. So I feel a bit about that. Um, put a lot of work into it, consulted many Vaishnavas about it. That will be coming out sometime. Um, I just published a book of um, 15 essays I've written about Western Jesuit scholars in India. Uh, it's a horribly expensive book from Brill. But looking back to Francis Xavier, Robert Ginobili, the early Jesuits, essays I've written in the past 35 years are now all collected under one cover. I can send you the reference. Sure, sure, absolutely. But the other thing I would say, so I'm always doing new things, and you know, now the semester's ending, and no travel in the summer, I'll often find things to keep myself busy. I've got so many books on my shelf, and I think I'll do it. The other thing would be to say, um, I 100% or more commend what you're doing because these uh, conversations and podcasts, getting people, you know, providing context in which people can talk about what they care about and, and be able to exchange the ideas in a non-threatening, non-abrasive form is really, really valuable. And I think I also compliment you on doing it very well. You're very easy to talk to. Um, you make it conversational, not tense or you know, not looking at the lot. I think you're doing wonderful work and I encourage you to keep it up. Well, thank you, Father Clooney. I appreciate it. You know, um, I appreciate your time and, you know, your work has been, and I, it's funny, um, I didn't bring it up at the beginning, but I, I, I believe I emailed you about it when I was in law school in Boston. Um, I had just gotten back into my, uh, getting into the, the Indian tradition text. So I, I, in some sense, I learned uh, Sanskrit and Greek in college. Um, uh, I, I didn't learn, I didn't learn Koenig Greek. I learned uh, Doric Attic Greek. So like more Homeric and stuff like that. Um, but I remember when college I was there uh, in law school in Boston and you had, you had been given a talk. I forget. I, it was at Harvard University and I went to listen because I had not at this point really gotten a sense of even, even though I knew I belonged to the Shivashima tradition, I wasn't knowledgeable about it. I didn't understand the metaphysics, the devotional aspect uh, to the extent maybe I do now. Um, and I, I think your, your conversation, um, your, your talk on bhakti was very, very informing to me. And it struck me and hit me hard because it was, I, I used to throw bhakti aside in the sense that it's, it's an emotional appeal. It's, it's, it's just like, and then it became more and more, it's, it's not just an emotional appeal. It's just like this deep longing it's just like this the, the it's the relational aspect of humanity in some sense that's connected to something that's unfathomable and we and and as i think as you as people grow in life and as they experience more things they they have a sense of that in some ways um and and i i want to thank you for that uh the opportunity to listen to your talk way back 20 almost 20 maybe 15 16 years ago and it was fantastic for me. Um, and, you know, thank you for being an influence from, you know, that time. And now I've reread your books and, you know, it was, it was great to get in touch with you. Thank you. And just reaffirm again, as in many of your points today, uh, that Bhakti is emotional, it is devotional, it is ecstatic. 
But again, a nice thing about Sri Vaishnava tradition, it also has like a bedrock intellectual grounding, philosophical grounding. That's why Vishishtha Vaita is so important. And if anybody picks up and reads Yamuna, Alavandar, and Ramanuja, they know they're dealing with a heavy duty intellectual. Vedanta Deshika. Vedanta Deshika, heavy duty thinkers who somehow found being an intellectual doesn't dry up my soul. Right. And the devotee at the same time. And I think Vaishnavism, like the best of Catholicism, shows us we can do it. Well, thank you so much, uh, Father Clooney. Um, and hopefully you'll join us again sometime soon.